You are listening to the Embrace What Matters podcast. My name is John Mahalik. I'm a seminary-trained author and speaker with over 25 years' experience encouraging others in the areas of spiritual life change and authentic relationship. My goal is to bridge the things of eternity with everyday experience. The current episodes in this podcast are sermons that I delivered while pastoring a church in the country of Honduras. If this podcast encourages you and helps you, can I ask that you please write a review and leave a rating? It will simply help more people find the podcast who may, like you, be searching for more purpose and meaning. Thanks again for listening and enjoy this week's episode. We are in a series, if you haven't been here, on the Bible. It is a series about the Bible. Uh, the intentions behind the series are to build your trust, uh, either introduce you or remind you of why the written Bible, the written Word of God, is trustworthy. Uh, this is going to be a multiple weeks, not sure how many. This is about week four, I think. So uh, if you have not heard uh, previous sermons, I encourage you to go online and, and listen to all the sermons if you can. Just because I'm not there, are, you might listen to one sermon and not have a full understanding. Whereas if you listen to all of them, you'll you'll have a better comprehensive understanding of what I'm trying to communicate. And so uh, one of the, one of the other things I mentioned is because this is a message about the Bible, uh, it's going to feel at times a little bit like you're in Bible uh, college or a, a college class. And this morning is probably one of the chief examples of that. It's going to be a little bit technical, and probably the one following this will, will be a little bit, feel a little bit like that as well. But I think this stuff it can be very helpful uh, to your understanding and to building your faith and your trust in the Scriptures. So I want to zero in this morning on, on the actual text itself of the Scriptures. Uh, not, not the meaning of the text, but whether we can trust in the integrity of the biblical text that you and I have today. Let's see this. All right. So as if you've been here, you understand that there's lots of people who believe different things about the scriptures. Unbelievers, but also believers have a varying level of belief about uh, the integrity of the scriptures, how trustworthy they are, what they communicate, uh, whether they communicate uh, history, reality, morals, that kind of thing. And there's lots of people who believe in the scriptures, but they don't necessarily care so much about whether the uh, scriptures always point to something that's historical because they look at it more of a, a moral book. And it doesn't necessarily have to be historical to uh, communicate morality or, or, or ways of life. And so it's interesting that Peter himself uh, had, had some of this argument going on. Uh, he was obviously knew Jesus. And, and uh, so shortly after... The, the Christian church began, he wrote a letter where he had to address this question. What, what is the word of God, myth or reality? And so 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. So the immediate context he's talking about is his experience with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where this amazing divine event happens. Jesus is glorified and, and all this. And so he's immediately talking about that, but he's also kind of speaking in general about 
both his experience of Jesus, but also the, the word that he was writing, the word of God that he was writing. What is this thing myth or reality? Myth wasn't such a big deal back then. I mean, people who were uh, Roman or, or Greek followed Greek mythology, Roman theology, uh, th uh, mythology. Uh, you know, th things like Zeus and stuff. Uh, people followed them, but I'm not sure that they necessarily all believed that, that Zeus was a real person. Uh, so, so myth was something that was kind of uh, mixed together, and, and it didn't always matter that it was actually true. And so that's part of the context that he's speaking about. And he's saying, and so he goes on in, in uh, chapter one and he says this. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And that's why another reason I think he's speaking more about just this transfiguration event. We have this prophetic word more uh, fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So he's saying this word, what word? Well, I think he's really speaking generally about the word of God. How do I know what follows? It says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And by prophecy, he's probably really referring to the entire word of God, not just predictions. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we, we, we used this, uh, the end part of this last week when we were talking about the origins of Scripture. Where does Scripture come from? It comes from the very heart, mind of God, right? And, and so it's not about man. But what he's also saying is, is this relates to the veracity, the integrity, the reality of Scripture. It comes from God. It's not about men. This isn't something that I just made up. It's not a myth, this really happened. I was an eyewitness to this. And so this speaks to a couple of different areas of focus that we've been involved with the last few weeks. The only way for you and I that the Bible is relevant for today, the Bible that you and I have, is one, it needs to be trustworthy as coming from God. And we've kind of covered that the last few weeks. It needs to be trusted. We need to know it comes from God. Otherwise, it's just a book. Also, though, it, need, it needs to be considered to be true both historically and spiritually. It needs to really be both, right? Some people, again, we talked about people that love evidence. They love the history, the physical side of things. We have people who love the spiritual side, the faith, the mystery. The Bible really needs to be understood as true both historically and spiritually. And we see that example in, in the letter from Peter. This, real, this spiritual event happened, the transfiguration. <laughs> this was a, a, a heavenly, mysterious event, but it really did happen. This wasn't just some made-up myth to teach you something. This really happened, and this word needs to be taken seriously. And so he's saying that, you know, right after <laughs> these events happened, you know, a few years afterwards. So what kind of challenge do you and I have today when it comes to the trustworthiness of the scriptures that we have today. If you played the telephone game as a kid, right, starts out where somebody says peas and then the kid at the end says fleas. <laughs> you know, it's a very simple game. But even with a simple game like that, you know that things can be misinterpreted as they are transferred from one person to another. So that's just a simple child's game. But what about the Bible? 
The Bible was written over 2,000 years ago and longer, over a 1,500-year time span, over 40 generations, by more than 40 writers from every walk of life, on three different continents, and in three different languages. Can such a set of documents compiled from ancient times, copied thousands of times before the age of printing, still be reliable and accurate, not to mention worth trusting our whole lives to? This is really a question about evidence, right? We talked about the two dynamics. What do, what do we value? Do we value evidence? Do we value faith? This is really a question about evidence. So you might look at this and be a faith person and say, well, this question doesn't really matter because I just trust that the Bible is the word of God and it is and, and that's fine. However, again, listen to the last few weeks. I don't know that that's enough for me or is that going to be enough for others, especially people that are, don't believe in the Bible, don't believe in God, who we have a responsibility to provide a reason for the hope that is within us, a reason, a rational reason why we believe what we believe. So it behooves us, not for our own faith and for the way we communicate to others, to have a good sense of how to answer a question like this. It's a reasonable question. It's a reasonable question. Not just because rationality matters, but because the Word of God, God himself, everything about God, isn't just some up there spiritual thing. God came to us. God lived in history. That's one of the reasons that Christianity is so distinct from other religions, is it's not this far away God, this spirituality that's apart from us. It's the spirituality that is here, that has everything to do with the physical world, the world around us. It's a, it's a truth that is historical in the here and now. It has a bearing on the history of who you are in the here and now, the history that is gonna happen in the future. So that's another reason why it's important to not shy ourselves away from the physical questions about the scriptures, myth or reality. So this morning I'm gonna get, you know, I said a little technical and talk about textual transmission. We're gonna play the telephone game, so to speak, with the scriptures. Can I follow the trail from the Bible that I have today to the original scriptures, again, based on this faith claim that God was the one that inspired it, that this stuff was written 2,000 plus years ago, can I follow that trail along the line of evidence and have some level of confidence that the Bible I have today is the Bible that was written then? So this is an image of a Bible translation. <laughs> uh, I don't think they're here. Uh, Christy and Tamara, they have a ministry to the deaf community here in Honduras, in Tegucigalpa. And, and so they have a deaf school, but they've also started this Bible translation for the deaf community. And it's not just a Bible translation in what I thought was like universal sign language. It is a, apparently a sign language that is very specific, not just to Spanish, but to Honduran Spanish. And so while certainly deaf people can read the Bible, this is a Bible that is sort of written in their first language, the language they use most often. So it's pretty amazing, and I encourage you to talk to them about it. But this, so it's on video, and there's this guy that's signing the scriptures. And so there's a lot to that. And, and so they use imagery and all sorts of things to communicate the scriptures to the local deaf community. It's wonderful. But you ask the question, is the, is the version they're giving the word of God? 
Is it the word of God that, that we got so many thousands of years ago? Can I follow that trail? And so I, I don't just ask this question about these guys. I ask it about the ESV, the NIV, you know, the Bibles that you and I use. So what about the Old Testament? Can we follow this trail almost like a CSI detective for the Old Testament, trusting in the text itself? So I want to briefly talk about Hebrew scribes or Masoretes. These are Hebrew scribes. Here's a description of a Hebrew scribe or the tra tradition of scribes from Old Testament times onward, from Bernard Rom. Jews preserved the Old Testament as no other manuscript has ever been preserved. With their Masera, they kept tabs on every letter, syllable, word, and paragraph. The Hebrew word for scribe that we have in, in the English is the word sofer, which literally means one who counts one who counts. So they aren't just looking at it, they're not just looking at the scriptures from memory to copy them and transfer them to another version, right? They are counting the letters, the syllables, the words. And he goes on and he says, uh, these scribes, they had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with practically perfect fidelity. Scribes, lawyers, Masoretes. So it's amazing that this claim is made, and, and if they really did approach it this way, it's, it's, it's fascinating, but it also can build my confidence. This was a special vocation. This was like a priesthood, where a scribe would be assigned to this, and he was not just copying a document, he was copying the very word of God. They would often do ceremonial cleansing before they sat down to do this copying. They, again, they couldn't do it from memory. They had to do it through this very meticulous uh, thing because they understood that, this, that they wanted the, the integrity of God's word to be transferred on with fidelity. So again, do we know that the Bible, the Old Testament that we have today is, is the Bible that was written then? Again, we get back to that question. Well, if this was the way that it was transferred, that, that helps me. But also, we look at something like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which... Is a, is a big help as well. The Masoretes, the Masoretic text is, is the Hebrew version of the Old Testament that we ha have had for a long time. But the, that school of scribe really existed in the latter times of AD. And so the oldest version of the Old Testament that we had for a long time was from around 900 AD. So, you know, from the New Testament times, that's more than a thousand years. And so telephone game-wise, I'm going, well, I don't know. I don't know that I, that, I, that I trust that's the original Old Testament. But then, if you're familiar, in 1947, a, a, I believe a shepherd boy was uh, hunting around in some caves. These are caves that are located around 30 miles east of Jerusalem. They are right near the Dead Sea in the caves of Qumran. And so he discovered these scrolls. And these scrolls were located not just in that cave, but in multiple caves in that area. And they were, as they studied them, written by these guys, the Essenes, who lived before, in the time kind of before and after Christ. And so these scrolls were dated to around 100 B.C. And other than the book of Esther, they contained the entire Old Testament, 
And so where we had, the, the, the oldest version that we had was 900 AD. This just shot 1,000 years back to 100 BC or so. So you might be asking the question, how was the transfer? What was the transmission like? What, what was the difference between 900 and, and 100? Again, most of the Old Testament was, was in this collection. The fidelity was unbelievable. Uh, one example that's given was they had a version of the book of Isaiah. This is a, an illustration of the Dead Sea Scroll manuscript of Isaiah. Isaiah, between 900 AD and 100 BC, differed by only 17 letters. It was so close. Now, were there variations? Yes, there were variations between the two manuscripts collections, but the, the variations were very tiny. Certainly tiny when it comes to meaning. Issues of spelling, sometimes word order, but certainly no significant difference between the texts. And so this absolutely <laughs> showed us, you know, telephone game-wise, that this, this methodology of scribes counting and stuff really did work. So again, we're looking at evidence here. We're looking at kind of the physical side. That certainly should build my faith to understand, that, again, we're going back very close to the Old Testament times that we have these in existence today. Another document or collection of documents that's helpful as far as understanding and trusting in the Old Testament is the Septuagint. It's called the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, the best history and scholarship says that this was probably translated around 200 BC. Uh, the world was becoming very Greek right, at the time. And so, so that, that's why the, the uh, Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And so we have ancient copies of this. And there's lots of reasons why this can help build your uh, fidelity and trust in the scriptures. But again, there's, there's a lot of ancient documentation that really can build the evidentiary case that the scriptures we read today are the scriptures of back then. What about the New Testament? The New Testament. Here is a quote from uh, Josh McDowell. He's a, a famous uh, Christian apologist. About the New Testament, he says, there is more evidence for the reliability of the text of the New Testament as an accurate reflection of what was initially written than there is for any 10 pieces of classical literature put together. It is also in better textual shape than the 37 plays of William Shakespeare written in the 17th century after the invention of printing. This is a very bold and outrageous statement. <laughs> To, to, talk, to speak about it this way, especially with something like Shakespeare, which isn't, you know, history-wise, very old. Is this true? Well, I haven't investigated every part of this claim to, to know whether it's true, but, but I believe I could, I could agree with him in the studies that I've done. The New Testament that we have today is in very good textual shape in comparison. One of the issues is the numbers of ancient manuscripts that we have. Again, the New Testament was written in Greek, and so what I'm really focusing on isn't not so much printed manuscripts of the Old Testament or the New Testament, but the ancient manuscripts, the ones that came before the age of printing. One reason is because you know printing is a little bit easier for us with our scientific detective brains to follow. So if I can show you from the ancient world before the age of printing that we have strong evidence, I think that's even more powerful. So the numbers don't lie. 
we have around 5,600, 5,686 known Greek manuscripts. And by manuscripts, I mean from a full collection of the New, Old, uh, the New Testament, from a full collection of the New Testament to a book of the New Testament, or even down to like a fragment of, of the New Testament. So that's what I mean by that. We have over 5,600 versions, ancient versions, either in part or whole, of the, of the uh, New Testament, which was the original language. We have around 10,000 Latin translations of the Greek. We have around 10,000 Latin translations from the ancient world. We have around 9,300 Syriac, Coptic, and Aramaic translations of the New Testament. That gets us to around 25,000 ancient copies of the New Testament, whether fragment to whole collection. This is a, a list of ancient documents when he talks about classical literature. So again, a lot of people would, would say the foundations of our modern world is based on guys like this. Caesar, Plato, Herodotus, Sophocles, Euripides, Aristotle. This is foundational stuff for who we are in the modern world. Well, what, what does this look like when it comes to the textual transmission and the number of copies, et cetera. A guy like Plato, right, wrote from around uh, 427, 347 BC, and the, when, it, when, it's, when it's listed like this, this is, this is a document, I don't know which document it was by Plato. The earliest copy of that document, or the fragment, that's also what I'm not sure of, whether that's whole copies or fragments, is about 900 AD. So that's a span of about 1,200 years from the time it was believed to be written to our earliest copy. How many copies of that do we have? Around seven. And so you can kind of see this. We have Sophocles, 193 copies with a span of about 1,400 years. And there are some that I left off this list that uh, are a little bit less, maybe a span of eight, 900 years, but they're just names that you don't know. So we have 193 Sophocles, Demosthenes, about 200 copies. But you see kind of collectively, it's around, what's this, the telephone game? 1,000 to 1,400 know, years between the time that it was written to the time we have an earliest copy. About the best the classical world can do is Homer. This is the document, it is the Iliad, I believe. So it was believed to be written around 900 BC. The earliest copy we have is around 400. So that's about a 500 year span, it's not bad. And we have around 643 copies of the Iliad. Again, ancient copies. This, you saw in the title photo, is what's called the P-52. It is the Papyrus 52. It is, a, it is an ancient copy of the Gospel of John. It's a fragment, obviously. Why does it have the parallel thing? Is because there was a front and the back. So on the front, you have John 18, 31 through 33, and on the back, you have 18, 37 through 38. This is dated around 125 AD, and it is believed that John probably wrote his Gospel around 96 AD. So we have Homer, right? 500-year span, 643 copies. A P52 is just the one fragment, but that's a span of only 29 years from the time that it was written. The earliest full copy that most people agree upon uh, with the New Testament is 
around 400 AD, the fourth century, we have the full New Testament put together, but you really have a lot of the New Testament that's earlier than this. There's a pretty full collection uh, of the New Testament from around 250 AD. So that's really only a span of around 150 years, but you know, 300 years. But compared to the rest, <laughs> it doesn't even come close. The time span and the number of copies do not even come close. All right, almost 25,000 copy, ancient copies of the New Testament. So again, at the very least, this should give you pause <laughs> that there's a lot of evidence out there for the integrity of the text in the New Testament. So is the text of the New Testament now the same as it was then? Well, that requires a little bit of study. Uh, there are beliefs about New Testament textual transmission, meaning how did it happen? What was the methodology? And this is with the understanding that God wanted his word to be heard, right? So how did he... How did he get the word of yesterday to be the word of today that we have in our Bibles? Well, one uh, approach is the preservationist view, the preservationist. And, and so you maybe have heard in your studies of the textus receptus, the majority text. These are the Greek texts that whereby we get the King James Version, the New King James, and some older Bibles called the Tyndale, Young's Literal Translation, etc. Another way of looking at it, uh, uh, transmission, is the restorationist view, the restorationist view. This is what is called the critical or the eclectic text. I have a copy of the text here. It's certainly what we used in, in seminary quite a bit. And this is most modern versions use this version of the Greek New Testament, ESV that we have here, NAS, NIV, etc. And so this is a, an image of the Nestle Elan, the, the, the critical Greek text. And at the bottom, and so here's the difference between the two, the preservation and restorationist. The, the preservationist has the sense that because God inspired the word of God and he wanted his word to be inerrant from the beginning to the time we have now, et cetera, was that there was a, a, an immediate line of succession where there was no difference whatsoever. And so people that are King James only, who believe uh, that that version of the modern English Bible is the word that we had 2,000 years ago, they don't trust any other versions, believe that because they believe it came from a, a series of Greek scribes who, are, who were in the majority, the majority texts. Most of the Greek texts that we have are in this classification. And so that's why they believe it. They believe that it's the majority rules, that must mean that the King James is the only version. Modern uh, translations or versions of the scriptures use the critical text. And the critical text takes <coughs> a restorationist view. It looks at, the, at, at all 5,600 manuscripts and by a very careful, really scientific methodology makes a, a, a determination of what the original probably was. And so it gives a lot more weight to older texts. The problem with a lot of the majority texts that where you get the King James is they're very late. They're very late. A few are from the 5th century, most are from the 8th and 9th century. But this one will go to texts that are in the 4th and earlier and give a lot of weight to that. And this is something where I can't really <laughs> talk about in any detail this morning. This is an area of study where you will have to look at yourself. But the methodology is such that it, this is not guesswork. This is very forensic. <laughs> this is at least as careful as somebody doing nuclear science or something in my view. It's very careful. It is 
from the, from the, uh, the efforts of man, men are doing this, but they, they make a very good assumption, so to speak, of what the original text was. And so the arrow down below is, is what's called the apparatus. So above is the Greek text of what they believe the original was. Below is a little thing that you can use to say, well, what if, if, if John 3.16 had, had one letter different in, in a manuscript, and that's the letter that we believe was the original, it will go down below and say, well, other manuscripts will not use the word A or whatever. So it, so it really gives you, as a student, a way to make your own determination of what the original word of God was. And so, again, it's, it's a little dangerous to introduce something like this to you without giving you all the details. But I will tell you that, you know, in my study of this, I, I trust in this methodology very strongly, very strongly. But I will also say that in my time of seminary and study, um, in studying all these things, I, I have a very strong comfort level in reading the modern English versions of scripture. I've studied the Greek, I've learned Greek, I've learned how to use all this stuff. I have no problem with somebody opening up a King James Version. I have no problem with somebody opening up an NIV and that kind of thing. There are, there are paraphrases, which I'll talk about in a few weeks probably, that I have less trust for. But I really just, again, from the evidentiary side, really believe that I'm really seeing something that's very close to the original. Are there variations among these Greek texts? Yes, there are. But again, like the Old Testament, they are very minor when it comes to importance. It's, it's just very minor stuff. Has nothing to do with, with significant doctrine. There are, there are some passages that people debate on, but they're very few. And again, when I, I just looked at them again this week, they're not, they're not major doctrinal issues. The vast majority, somewhere in the 90 percentile of, of the Bible, the Greek Bible that we have today, is extremely close, in my view, to the original text of Scripture. There are some other evidence that I'll just talk about briefly outside of the text. We have non-Christian historians like Josephus, Roman historians that will, in their, in their work that we still have today, will corroborate the, the historical events of the New Testament. Jesus was born, he died, that kind of thing. So we have that. We have church fathers like Clement, uh, Ignatius, who were contemporaries uh, we believe of the apostles who wrote, you know, just a few decades after all this stuff happened. And in their writings, you can see quoted virtually the entire New Testament. I mean, not the, the, the quantity-wise, but they will, met, they will quote Romans. They will quote Corinthians. And so, again, just decades from the time this stuff was written, we have uh, quotations of virtually the entire New Testament. We have archaeology. Uh, some 25,000 archaeological sites have been discovered that corroborate the history of the Old Testament. And there are a lot of archaeological sites that do the same thing for the New, but there's, there's fewer because the, the New Testament only covered about 60 years or so. So we, we have tons of physical evidence when it comes to archaeology. And then we have prophecies that are fulfilled. Now this might seem a little bit less about evidence, but... We, again, if you follow the evidentiary trail and you determine that the book of Isaiah was written by Isaiah, was dated a certain date before Christ, he makes prophecies that you can't explain 
otherwise. He, he prophesies things about the Old Testament, about a king named Cyrus being born and doing certain things 160 years before Cyrus is born. A lot of scholars believe that uh, there are some 191 prophecies in places like Isaiah and Psalms about everything to do with Jesus Christ's life. So again, we can play, you know, <laughs> we can go back and forth, but if this stuff historically happened, that, you know, even non-believers believe a lot of the stuff about Jesus happened historically, you know, and then that can actually prove forensically that this stuff was written so long before that happened, then you have to make your own decision. That's, that, that can be very powerful evidence for Scripture. So preservation, restoration, you might have a different opinion. I really kind of take the view when it comes to my trust of Scripture that I want to lean on both, preservation and restoration. Matthew 13, Jesus is, has just told the parable of the seed and the sower. And when he finishes, he sends out a type of calling card. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so most people didn't respond to that. They just heard a story about farming. But his disciples, the ones who believed in him, came up to him and said, uh, why are you speaking to people in parables? And he responds this way. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears because they hear. Again, this follows the, the line that I've given in the, in the last few weeks about evidence and faith. I've just given you a very brief overview of evidence about the confidence that we can have in the scriptures. Is that enough evidence to convince you? I would say even if I am a strong believer, that's not enough evidence. I can never get to the place of absolute certainty. Right? And if that's where I'm leaning too far, that can really affect my faith. And certainly that's a problem when it comes to a non-believer who lives in this world of just evidence. So if it's just evidence we're looking for, it's not enough evidence, but it's a lot of evidence. It's a lot of evidence. It really points, again, to the fact that the, the revelation of God, God himself, has a great bearing on the physical world, on history, on everything. Right? Is it spiritual or are we ultimately going to a place called heaven and all that? Yes, but the divine and the human come together. And we're to look at both of them together. But we will never have that ultimate certitude like we talked about last week until the Holy Spirit gives us that confidence. And that's where we enter into the realm of faith. So again, Matthew 13, there was, most of the crowd did only heard a story about farming. The ones who answered Jesus' invitation, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, went further. Right? They stepped into the River Jordan, and then the waters parted. But it, also, it really also explains why so many people doubt the Bible, because they won't take that step. They won't listen. Right? It's really set up that way. We can see it. Right? They won't listen. They won't understand. They won't see. But you blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So we really want to, I think, focus on preservation and restoration. How can I truly trust that the Bible is infallible in its totality? Well, it depends on how I define infallible in one way. Do I define it just on the base of evidence, 
right? Just in a scientific way? Or do I say, well, infallible probably means unfailing in its purpose. So is the Bible of today unfailing in its purpose in the same way that it was 2,000 years ago? Yes. And I can come to that conclusion through the, through the doorway of both evidence and faith. The Bible is inerrant. Does that mean it never, doesn't have any errors in the way that you and I look at errors in the modern way? No. <laughs> All right? there's, different, there's different textual issues, etc. No, it means that it is free from error in all that it affirms. I can get to that area of confidence through a study of both evidence, but also faith. The Bible is authoritative. It is sufficient. It is life-giving. It is trustworthy, right? The path to coming to a level of certitude on all these things is a journey through evidence and through faith. The Bible declares things about itself. Isaiah 40. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Scripture cannot be broken, Jesus says in John 10. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And then he says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the, does that speak to the integrity of the text of the word of God? Yes. But ultimately it speaks to the integrity of the speaker of the word of God, God himself. God is fulfilling these promises. So it's more than just a book about morality. It's more than just a book about history and things like that. It's far more than that. And if I don't enter into that reality of the word of God, I'm never fully gonna trust in the integrity of the written scriptures. So I'll close with Peter's word in 2 Peter. We do, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I really believe that I'm not gonna have a full confidence and trust in the written scriptures unless I can say something that's very similar, meaning, I didn't have access to Jesus in the way that Peter did. You know, there was a human being that he spent time with and he had the transfiguration moment and all this. But can I also say, this stuff is not myth. This stuff is not made up. I have been an eyewitness to his majesty. I think I need to be able to say that. It is spiritual, it is historical. I can't say that unless God has worked through the, the writers of the original scripture, the ones who have transferred the verses and the, and the text over the thousands of years, unless he has worked with those people to deliver his word to me today, I can't say that, right? But also I can't say that unless he has restored my heart to believe it. Preservation, restoration, right? I ultimately come to a place where Despite my problems, my sin, my imperfections, despite the imperfections that I might see if I do an evidentiary study of the scriptures, that God is restoring my heart to believe that the word of God is infallible, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, trustworthy. I can believe this because the word of God is the living word of God. I can study I can learn things, I can become smarter, but I ultimately need to live it. I need to walk in relationship with the word of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're humbled and grateful for every provision that you give us. We thank you that you have given us eyes and ears and, and brains, the ability to reason and to look for evidence and to see the, and celebrate the physical world, but also that you have entered into the world yourself and renewed and restored our hearts and given us your spirit so that we can have access and be eyewitnesses to the spiritual world, to the world of the heavenlies, to the world of your character, your power, your love that can speak into the darkness of our lives and the world around us and call us to a heavenly being and a heavenly way of life in a future that is hopeful and meaningful. Lord, I ask that you can instill in our hearts a better sense of why and how we can trust in the scriptures. I ask for those who have the desire to study further that you can open doors for that to happen. And Lord, I pray that you can open the doors of communication, that all of us can have the words and the proper words to speak to others who need to know, who need to believe for the reason of the hope that is within us. I pray that we can do this with gentleness and respect. I ask for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. And I'll close with some of Moses' final words in Deuteronomy. So picture yourself as these people who have wandered in the promised land or in the wilderness and who are about to enter into the promised land. Moses said, when he had finished speaking, all these words to Israel, he said, take heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but for your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. The word of God is living and active. The word of God is life. The word of God is the way and the truth and the life. Amen. This podcast is produced by Embrace What Matters Ministries and is available most anywhere podcasts can be found. I encourage you to subscribe, share, and please leave a comment or send me an email. To learn more about this ministry, my devotional book, and other writings, please visit EmbraceWhatMatters.com.